five, four, three, two, one. In the dead silence of the morning, at 5.29.45 Mountain War Time, the Jornada del Muerto was bathed in an intense flash of a light that man had only seen from the stars. The Atomic Age began at exactly 5.30 Mountain War Time on the morning of July 16, 1945. On a stretch of semi-desert land about 50 airline miles from Almogarordo, New Mexico. And just at the instant, there rose from the bowels of the earth a light not of this world. The light of many suns in one. Journalist William L. Lawrence, New York Times, September 26th. 1945 December 7th 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered this speech the day after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, which dragged the United States into World War II. Now you might think that this was the moment that America decided to build a nuclear bomb. Well, you'd be wrong. The Manhattan Project was the code name for the nation's top secret quest for atomic weapons. And the story begins nearly two years earlier. On October 11, 1939, on that day, President Roosevelt received a letter from a theoretical physicist who wrote, quote, In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable, through the work of Jolet in France, as well as Fermi, in America, that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by vast amounts of power and large quantity of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now, it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. That was a letter that was penned to the president by Albert Einstein himself. And just a week later, Roosevelt writes Einstein back informing the physicist that he had set up a committee consisting of civilian and military representatives to study uranium. They called it the Uranium Committee. 
and this eventually will become the U.S. Department of Energy. This one decision sets a series of chain reactions that would eventually create a top-secret system that spanned six states and, at its peak, employed over 100,000 people, and we know it as the Manhattan Project. But the Manhattan Project didn't start out quite so massive. In the first months after Einstein and Roosevelt exchanged letters, some of the smallest science possible was being conducted in a system that would grow over time into what are today the 17 national laboratories. And these scientists were running up against a very big problem on a very small scale. In early 1940, researchers knew that uranium, an element found in tiny amounts all over the Earth, could be used to create a chain reaction explosion. And here's a little bit about how that works. When you bombard a uranium atom with energy, sometimes neutrons fly out of its nucleus, releasing lots more energy in the process. They call it splitting the atom, or nuclear fission. If there's enough uranium, a neutron from the first atom can hit the nucleus of another atom and cause it to split, and so on and so on and so on, giving you a nuclear chain reaction. But there's a catch. 99.3% of naturally occurring uranium exists in a form known as uranium-238. Now, uranium-238 itself isn't very good for sustaining the kind of chain reaction necessary for a nuclear weapon. For that, you need a far less prevalent form, or an isotope, called uranium-235. So, these scientists had to figure out how to separate uranium-235 from uranium-238. These two isotopes are chemically identical, which means that they cannot be separated by a chemical process. And with their masses differing by less than 1%, separation by a physical process would be extremely difficult and not to mention extremely expensive. Still, scientists press forward on a couple of the complicated techniques to physically separate the two isotopes, which were all based on that tiny difference in atomic weight. Now, if we fast forward to May of 1941, there's a scientist introduced named Glenn T. Seaborg, and he proved that, a, that the newly discovered element plutonium was almost twice as likely as uranium to create a chain reaction. Most importantly, it could be chemically separated from the widely available uranium-238. These two elements, uranium-235 and plutonium, would become the basis for the two bombs that were dropped to end World War II and thus begin the Atomic Age. But before any of that happened, the government had to figure out how to best organize the project under the shroud of total and complete secrecy. They would also have to figure out who would lead it and what to call it. The Army Corps of Engineers had a practice of naming their districts as engineer districts, and they used the main city in the district primarily as the name. So this one happened to be located in New York City, in Manhattan. So they called it the Manhattan District. So they called it the Manhattan District. And when they changed it to a project, they just used the same name, and thus it became the Manhattan Project. The project itself was a vast, complicated undertaking, so with this episode, we're going to take a little bit to kind of break it down for you. An easy way to understand how the Manhattan Project worked is to split it up into three phases. Phase one, research and development. Phase two, plutonium production and uranium enrichment. And phase three, design and production of the first wartime atomic weapons. The Manhattan Project operated like a large construction company, but on a massive scale and with an incredible sense of urgency. In order to function properly, they had to purchase sites, they had to manage contracts, hire personnel, build housing and service facilities, they needed to order materials, and set up a system for keeping track of all the money and all of the people flowing into and out of the project. 
And although we're mainly going to focus on the three major sites that become the Manhattan Project National Historic Park, which are Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Hanford, Washington, and Los Alamos, New Mexico, there were other places that contributed research and materials for the project. So let's look at Phase 1. Phase 1 begins even before Hanford, Oak Ridge, or Los Alamos even became part of the equation. It goes back to one of the most important branches of the Manhattan Project itself, the Metallurgical Lab, or the Met Lab, in Chicago, Illinois. In the Met Lab, not to be confused with the Mad Lab, where I'm currently speaking into a microphone, the scientists from East and West Coast were brought together to develop chain-reacting piles, quote-unquote piles, for, for plutonium production. They would also devise method for extracting plutonium from the irradiated uranium and design a weapon from it. Most of the research, preparation, refining, and gathering took place at the Met Lab in Chicago. In an abandoned squash court under the West Grandstand of the University of Chicago's Stag Field lay a huge oblong pile of black bricks and wooden timbers shrouded on all sides but one by gray balloon material. Security regulations forbid the engineers from explaining what the Army wanted with a giant square balloon. These workers would make bricks for this pile until their faces were so covered with graphite dust that they looked like coal miners at the end of a shift. Unlike most reactors that have been built since this one, this first one had no radiation shielding whatsoever and no cooling system of any kind. Enrico Fermi, who led this experiment, had convinced everyone that his calculations were reliable enough to rule out a runaway chain reaction or explosion. But, as the official historians of the Atomic Energy Commission later noted, they were still conducting, quote, a possibly catastrophic experiment in one of the most densely populated areas of the nation, end quote. On December 2, 1942, less than one year after Pearl Harbor, under the grandstand at Stag Field, the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction was achieved. And it's at this point, the pace really quickens. Phase 2. This is where Oak Ridge and Hanford come in. They were working almost simultaneously together. The Oak Ridge Reservation included separate industrial processes for uranium enrichment and experimental plutonium production. The first person put in charge of the Manhattan Project was Colonel James Marshall, but he moved too cautiously for a project of this size, so the Army turned to Lieutenant General Leslie Groves. Groves, who was an engineer by trade, had just finished building a somewhat significant building in the Pentagon. He knew how to put together a large construction project, he knew how to get private industry involved, and he knew how to spend money effectively and efficiently. His first acts were to move the headquarters of the Manhattan Project from New York City to Washington, D.C., and also to procure land in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Some might argue that Oak Ridge was destined to become part of the Manhattan Project. Back around the turn of the 20th century, the Bear Creek Valley was lush with forest and scattered with families on all settlements. One of them was the Hendricks family. In 1900, John Hendricks's wife and his children left him shortly after his youngest daughter's death. Historian Ray Smith of Oak Ridge, Tennessee explains this. One of those families that had to leave was descended from a man named John Hendricks. Now John was born in 1865, at Civil War time. He was born in Bear Creek Valley, which is where Y-12 is today. But in 1900, his youngest daughter died. Now, his wife accused him of being the reason she died because he'd corrected the child the day before. So she left him, took all the rest of the children and went to Arkansas and never came back. This really upset John, so he prayed to God, wanting to know why this was happening to him. Heard a loud voice in one of the prayers that said, if you'll sleep on the ground for 40 nights, you'll learn the future of this place. Must have been in the wintertime because, as the story goes, his hair froze to the ground. 
when John got through sleeping on the ground, he had tremendous stories to tell. He'd tell anybody that would listen. He'd tell them that there's going to be a huge factory built in Bear Creek Valley that'll help win the greatest war there'll ever be. Going to be a railroad spur run right down by his property line. Going to be a city on Black Oak Ridge. And the seat of power for all this is going to be between Pyatt's Place and Tadlock's Farm. Well, John died in 1915. When a Manhattan Project came in here, the first shovel full of dirt they dug was right between Pyatt's Place and Tadlock's Farm. That's where they put the administration building. That's where the federal office building is today. That railroad spur runs right down by his property line over here in the Hendricks Creek subdivision, named for John Hendricks. And that city on Black Oak Ridge is Oak Ridge. And the uh, uh, plant, or the Y-12 in Bear Creek Valley is where the uranium was obtained for Little Boy that did help win World War II. The other major site at Oak Ridge is the X-10 graphite reactor, the first plutonium refining facility. Normally, in the chemical industry, you build a semi-works or a pilot plant to get the bugs out. Then you finalize a design and then go and build a full-scale facility. However, for the Manhattan Project, they didn't have that kind of time. So although X-10 was the pilot plant for the Hanford site's B reactor, construction started on it just six months ahead of the Washington facility. That small window of time turned out to be valuable because it allowed them to make the changes at Hanford should a mysterious leak develop in the B reactor. But more on that here in a bit. First, we should note that the X-10 reactor was built in just 10 months and went critical on November 4, 1943. Tom Mason of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory explains what that means. That means that a self-sustaining chain reaction had started. That's what's necessary to run a reactor. And of course, it's also what's necessary for the bomb to work. They were kind of exploring the physics of fission, but also the production of the material. The X-10 graphite reactor supplied Los Alamos with its first significant amounts of plutonium for research and experimentation. Fission studies on these samples from Oak Ridge heavily influenced plutonium bomb design. Oak Ridge was not only working to separate uranium, but they were also conducting research and training scientists and technicians who would eventually go to Hanford to work at the plutonium separation facility. So that's site number one, Oak Ridge. However, those in charge didn't want to put all their nuclear eggs in one basket. In fact, General Groves wasn't keen on the idea of locating full-scale plutonium production reactors at Oak Ridge, right near the uranium-235 separation plants. Plus, there was not enough electricity to power another big facility, and the site was uncomfortably close to Knoxville should an actual accident occur. Earlier that year, after a search in the western United States, Groves authorized the establishment of the Hanford Engineer Works at a site on the Columbia River in southeastern Washington state. In January 1943, the isolated 670-square-mile Hanford site offered abundant hydroelectric power, while the flat but rocky terrain provided excellent support for the huge plutonium production buildings. But this land came at a steep price. The Hanford landscape represented one of the first acts of the Manhattan Project to condemn private property and evict homeowners and Native American tribes to clear the way for their top-secret work. Former Hanford worker and vice president of the Tri-City Industrial Council, Gary Peterson, tells this story of what's known as the Tri-Cities of White Bluff, Hanford, and Richland, Washington. Quote, White Bluffs was the bigger city of the two. It was a population of around 240 or 250, but it was a huge agricultural area. The Hanford site actually had the earliest fruit growing anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. And so they grew apples, they grew walnuts, peaches, and they grew all kinds of fruits from fruit trees. The story was that a young woman who picked and packed peaches at one of the farms would always write her name inside the crates. One day, the woman ended up putting her name and address in the box to see where the box of fruit went. The box of fruit ended up in a New York restaurant, and the chef there found it, and he sent a note back to her and said, quote, This is where your peaches ended up. End quote. 
Take a moment and try to imagine what White Bluffs and Hanford might have looked like today had the Manhattan Project not existed. My personal feeling is that it would have been one of the richest agricultural areas in the whole state of Washington, bar none. I mean, you put water on that desert, it just grows stuff. Then there was the third city, Richland. Almost all the people who lived in Richland were looked on as being different. I mean, it was kind of an insular community. Some of the people of Richland stuck together. You know, they played cards together. They supported their football team together, that kind of stuff. These were people who were tied to their land and didn't appreciate General Groves in the U.S. Army trying to kick them off of it. Many local landowners rejected the first offers and took the Army to court. Colonel Matthias, whose orders were to purchase half a million acres in the area, decided to settle out of court as time was as much scarcer a resource than money was. In the summer of 1943, Richland, White Bluffs, and Hanford were depopulated to make room for the nuclear production facility, an atomic boomtown known as the Hanford Site. As time was of the essence, Allied intelligence knew the Germans were working on nuclear weapons also, but they weren't for sure how far they'd gotten. No one wanted to take any chances. Therefore, Hanford and Oak Ridge were built simultaneously, and the project were tested far less had it been during peacetime. At Hanford, the mission was focused purely on separating plutonium, and that was done at a facility called the B-Reactor. In September of 1944, the B-Reactor was the world's first large-scale plutonium production reactor. Its design mimicked that of the X-10 graphite reactor at Oak Ridge, but on a much larger scale and using water instead of air as a coolant. To give you an idea of the size difference, the X-10 needed 1,000 kilowatts to function, while the B-reactor was designed to operate at 250,000 kilowatts. The B-reactor is basically a 28 by 36 foot, 1,200 ton graphite cylinder lying on its side with 2,004 aluminum tubes all up and down its length. 200 tons of uranium rods, the size of hot dogs, are sealed in aluminum cans and placed inside the tubes. Then, cooling water from the Columbia River, which is first treated, was pumped through the aluminum tubes and around the uranium rods. Tour Guide Ann Vargas describes the process at the B Reactor. The making of plutonium. Changing uranium into that product of plutonium generates enormous amounts of heat. And so, here at the reactor, water was chosen to cool that process. So in the beginning, they had something like 30 gallons of water every minute going through the reactor. In later years, after modifications were made, there was as much as 70,000 gallons of water a minute going through the reactor. To help you put that into perspective, in the later years, when they increased the water flow through here because of the plutonium production was increased, this reactor could have provided enough water for a city with a population of 300,000 people. The uranium rods would drop into the pools behind the piles, and then they were moved by remote control rail cars to a storage facility five miles away for transportation to their final destination at one of the two chemical separation locations, which were also massive, scaled-up versions of those at Oak Ridge. And right before midnight on September 26, 1944, after a full year of building, it was time to fire up the machine. And it worked just like it was supposed to. Until, within 13 hours or so, it started shutting down. It turns out that the iodine-129 is a product that's produced in there. That produces xenon, and xenon is a neutron absorber like boron. It absorbs the neutron, so it was shutting down. And if I just read that sentence, and you did not have Adam Sandler in your head talking about boron, then you may be listening to the wrong podcast. Rick Bond, who is another tour guide at Hanford, said a man by the name of John Wheeler had seen a similar thing happen at the X-10 graphite reactor in Oak Ridge. Wheeler was the one who figured out that it was xenon poisoning. Luckily, there was an easy fix. They built 2004 process tubes in here, 
But when Fermi originally calculated it out, he thought they only needed about 1,500 process tubes to load up that much fuel. But then they said build 500 more just in case. Turned out they needed that 500 more. So they loaded in 500 more, and that gave them enough neutrons flying around for the reactor to work. It was actually the DuPont company that insisted on including the additional fuel when the facility was built. Thanks to their foresight, the Hanford team was able to load up the extra 500 extra tubes and get enough neutrons flying around for the reactor to work. At this point, the Manhattan Project was really starting to take shape. There was a site for plutonium production in Washington and a site for uranium production in Tennessee, but they still needed a place to build the device. So the site for the weapons design laboratory for the Manhattan Project had to meet certain criteria. It had to be far inland. The land had to be easy to acquire. It had to be not too far away from a rail hub. Los Alamos, New Mexico fit those requirements, but there were other places as well. And so the Manhattan Project had narrowed down the potential sites to several regions in the southwest United States. One of those regions was northern New Mexico. This is where J. Robert Oppenheimer enters the story the man who we know today as the father of the atomic bomb. He had just been appointed to lead the secret weapons facility. The historian Alan Carr explains, Oppenheimer had grown up in New York City, but he had plenty of money, and he and his brother liked to come out here and rent a cabin not too far from Los Alamos. So he was fairly familiar with the area. He, General Groves, and other government officials came out here on a scouting trip. They drove over the mountain, which Oppenheimer suggested, and they decided almost immediately that this was the spot. It met all of those basic requirements, and it was very defensible. And work started very quickly moving forward on letting people know that they would be leaving and making plans to build the laboratory and the town. Now, we're still a ways off from getting to Los Alamos, and so was the Manhattan Project. In order to end up at Los Alamos, they needed a way of producing and moving everything they needed for the bomb with the utmost secrecy. As a famous wartime poster said, quote, loose lips might sink ships, end quote. And with a ship this size, there was bound to be talk. So only a few people actually knew everything that was going on at either site, much less the entirety of the operation. At Oak Ridge, a company called Tennessee Eastman was hired by the Army Corps of Engineers to manage Y-12, and out of the 22,000 workers, only about 100, if that, knew what was going on. The chemist would have known they were working on uranium, but most of the others wouldn't have had a clue what they were working on. Some of the workforce were young women called cubicle operators. Today, they're often referred to as Calutron girls. Tennessee Eastman was hiring these young girls right out of high school and training them to keep that meter on a certain spot and let it drift to a control point and then bring it back. The Calutron girls might not have known what they were working on, but they knew it was important. Because at the end of the training, a man came in who was obviously important because he was dressed in suit clothes. And he said, young ladies, we can't tell you what you're doing. We can only tell you how to do it. All I can say is that if our enemy gets it first, God help us. Meanwhile, at Hanford, even the schoolhouses were abuzz about what was going on. One of the teachers one day asked all of her students, what do you think your dad and mom who work out there are doing? This one boy raises his hand. It's got to be little Johnny, right? His name was Johnny because that's the, that's the story in all of them. Little Johnny raises his hand and all excited, he says, I know, I know. And the teacher says, well, what? And the child says, well, they're building toilet paper. And she says, what? How? And he says, well, every day my dad goes to work with his lunch pack and every day he comes home with a roll of toilet paper. So obviously, they're making toilet paper. While there was plenty of speculation, the truth remained hidden. It was the mentality of the people in 1943 to not tell your neighbor anything about what you didn't want to spread. You can tell by the badges out on site which area you worked in. Once you got off site, your badge was tucked away someplace because it was to remain a secret. 
As for project leadership, the secrecy allowed them to make decisions with little regard for normal peacetime political considerations. Groves knew that as long as he had the backing of the White House, money would be available, and he could focus entirely on running the bomb project. It also meant that those involved with the Manhattan Project had to get creative in order to keep the project moving and obtain all the equipment they needed. The war effort forced many to play roles they never expected. Los Alamos historian Ellen McGahee says that the story of Robert Wilson, a physicist at Princeton University who got recruited to work covertly on atomic research for the Manhattan Project, When Wilson was tasked with going to Harvard University and quote-unquote borrowing an important piece of equipment, he and a small team of colleagues invented a backstory, their best secret agent impressions. They wanted Harvard's cyclotron, so they got to go to Harvard. Their meeting with the acting president, Paul Buck, and also with a professor of physics. His name is Percy Bridgman. It's like the beginning of a joke. A doctor, a lawyer, and a physicist put on disguises and walk into Harvard University. They represented an Army medical station located in St. Louis, Missouri, which needed a cyclotron for some kind of medical research. And so they had sewn medical insignias onto their doctor's uniform, and they were trying to figure out a way to get this piece of equipment without just coming in and sort of doing the government eminent domain thing. So they go through all of this sort of negotiation, and then Brigman says, and I'll quote, Well, if you want it for what you say you want it, you can't have it. But if you want it for why I think you want it, then you can have it. End quote. Even though a lot of universities weren't supposed to know what's going on with the Manhattan Project, they knew that something big was happening, so they released the equipment. So the B-reactor plutonium separation facility was up and running at Hanford. The electromagnetic uranium facility, Y-12, was chugging along at Oak Ridge. But there was one more step remaining, and that leads us to Phase 3. The final link in the Manhattan Project's far-flung network is the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And here's Alan Carr. We're the Weapons Design Laboratory. Our goal was to design, build, and find out ways to deliver the nuclear weapons in combat. So this was basically our function. This is kind of where all the work came together, so to speak. This is where all the materials and all of the effort that manifested itself in the form of combat weapons. In order for all the work to come together, they'd have to get the uranium from Oak Ridge and the plutonium from Hanford out to New Mexico. Ray Smith tells us how this was done. The way they would do that is kind of interesting. As they took the material out of those kaiotrons, they would put it in small gold-lined coffee cup-sized containers. They'd put two of them in a briefcase, strap it to an Army lieutenant's arm, dress him up to look like a salesman, put him on a passenger train up through Chicago and out to Los Alamos. That's the way all the uranium from Little Boy, for Little Boy, got transported from Y-12 out to Los Alamos. Now, an interesting thing about that, just a side note from a security standpoint, when they shipped that material out with two people, they would ride that train up to Chicago, and then they would transfer it to two other people, and they would ride the train out to Los Alamos. So the two that went to Los Alamos knew that they got something in Chicago and took it to Los Alamos. The two that came from Oak Ridge knew they got something in Oak Ridge and took it to Chicago but neither one of them knew where the other end point was. That was something that Groves insisted on, that kind of separation to keep the security. On February the 2nd, 1945, Los Alamos finally receives its first batch of plutonium. When the plutonium arrived, scientists quickly got to work to make the plutonium usable for the bomb. On April 12, 1945, after a long battle and declining physical health, President Franklin D. Roosevelt died at the age of 63. Vice President Harry S. Truman took the oath of office as president and is quickly briefed on the classified project known as Manhattan. In the summer of 1945 at Project Y, scientists and staff were preparing to conduct the Trinity test, which was to ensure that all the testing, breakthroughs, and labor to create a bomb would actually work. 
The exact origin of the codename Trinity is unknown, but in 1962, General Groves wrote to Oppenheimer about the origin of the name, asking if he had chosen it because it was a name common to rivers and peaks in the West and would not attract attention. Oppenheimer replied, I did suggest it, but not on that ground. Why I chose the name is not clear, but I know what thoughts were in my mind. There is a poem of John Donne, written just before his death, which I know and love. What shall my west hurt me, as west and east? In all flat maps, and I am one, are one. So death doth touch the resurrection. On Friday, July 13, 1945, the pitch-black curtain of night draped over the New Mexico sky. A small caravan of scientists saw the stars and reflected in the glass of their synchronized watches that all struck one minute past midnight. They were basically saying that they weren't superstitious, and this was sort of their way to send that message going down there on Friday the 13th. The code name for the plutonium core and the non-nuclear components they carried was the quote-unquote gadget. A specifically designed army sedan began the journey from Los Alamos across the winding mountain roads that were all dim and quiet at this time. Through the stillness of night, down into the Rio Grande Valley, they traveled 7,000 feet in elevation through Santa Fe, past Albuquerque, until finally arriving in Almagorordo to the Trinity site itself. The Trinity site was set up with a 100-foot steel tower at Ground Zero, there were three observation bunkers located 10,000 yards north, west, and south of the tower. And the reason they put the device on top of a tower? Well, believe it or not, it was actually for photography. Back then, there wasn't a whole lot of photography just for sightseeing. It was for historical purpose and things of that nature. They needed good photographs of the fireball so they could measure it and get a good calculation as to the yield of the bomb itself. So if you set the bomb off of the ground, then you immediately have a bunch of dust. If you set it off on top of a tower, in the milliseconds and early milliseconds when the bomb goes off, you can get some great photos of the fireball actually expanding. On Saturday, July 14, 1945, the gadget was assembled with the plutonium into the high explosives. They let off the detonators and then raised it to the top of the tower. But when they first attempted to do that, it didn't work. And I think the statement of this being a moment of crisis may be an understatement. Can you imagine what it felt like for the first couple of seconds when they were trying to put the plutonium in and it wouldn't go in? The issue was that the plutonium had warmed up and had been in the hot sun. The high explosives were in the tin underneath the tower and so, realizing that the plutonium had slightly expanded, they let it cool off, and then they made another attempt. This time, they were successful in being able to put the bomb together. So, that was the very first test that they overcame. On Monday, July 16, 1945, hours before dawn, General Groves, the orchestrator of the event... Ernest Lawrence, the inventor of Cyclotron, and J. Robert Oppenheimer, the director of Los Alamos, and a few select others arrived at the Trinity test area. Everyone who was on hand was restricted to one of the bunkers. The sounds of nervous chatter were drowned out by the countdown over the PA Five, system. Four, and at precisely 5.30 that morning, the one. atomic age began. Seconds after the detonation came a huge blast, sending searing heat across the desert and knocking some observers to the ground. A steel container weighing over 200 tons, standing a half a mile from ground zero, was knocked over. The bomb vaporized the tower that was holding it, and when the fireball came into contact with the ground, it absorbed the sand. The sand melted into the fireball, rained back down to the earth, and hardened on the desert floor, turning the sand around the base to green glass. That glass would later be named Trinitite, after the Trinity test. The device released approximately 18.6 kilotons of power, which is the equivalent to about 20,000 tons of TNT. This yield was far higher than anyone had predicted. 
The New Mexico sky was suddenly brighter than many suns. Some observers suffered temporary blindness even though they looked at the brilliant light through smoked glass. As the orange and yellow fireball stretched up and spread, a second column, narrower than the first, rose and flattened into a mushroom shape, thus providing the atomic age with a visual image that has become imprinted on the human consciousness as a symbol of power and of staggering destruction. He knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another those chilling and infamous words belong to J. Robert Oppenheimer the quote has become synonymous with nuclear weapons itself, and he spoke these words later on a documentary about making the atomic bomb. Now with a successful weapons test and a new card in his hand, President Truman confidently traveled to Berlin, Germany. On July 17, 1945, President Truman, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin convened in Berlin at the Potsdam Conference. The conference was the last of the World War II meetings held by the quote-unquote Big Three heads of state, and it started the day after the Trinity test. That's one of the reasons why they wanted to conduct the Trinity test on July 16th or earlier, that way that the president knew going into the meeting that he had either a functional bomb in his back pocket, or he knew to be quiet about it. On August 6, 1945, a 9,700-pound uranium bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, is loaded onto the B-29 airplane called the Enola Gay. Navy Captain and Los Alamos Weaponeer Williams Deke Parsons keeps a progress log of the mission during flight. O245 takeoff. From Tinian Island, the Enola Gay heads north by northwest toward the Japanese islands over 1,500 miles away. O300 started final loading of gun. O315 finished loading. Nearly three hours later, he records, O605 headed for Empire from Iwo. At O730, red plugs in. The red plugs armed the bomb so it would detonate if released. At 0741, started to climb. They flew at a low altitude before climbing to 31,000 feet. 0838, leveled off at 32,700 feet. The primary target, Hiroshima, a military city with a population of nearly 300,000. 0909, target in sight. 0915 and a half, dropped bomb. 43 seconds later, a huge explosion lights the morning sky as Little Boy detonated 1,900 feet above the city, directly over a parade field where the Japanese Second Army is doing calisthenics. The pilot, Captain Tibbets, immediately dives away to avoid the anticipated shock waves of the blast. 0916. Flash followed by two slaps on plane. Huge cloud. 1000. Still in sight of the cloud, which must be over 40,000 feet high. Captain Tibbets thinks he's taking gunfire. 1003. Fighter reported. A second shock wave hits the plane. The crew looks back at Hiroshima. Quote, the city was hidden by that awful cloud boiling up, mushrooming, terrible, and incredibly tall. 
end quote. That's from Captain Tibbetts as he looked back. 1041. Lost sight of the cloud 363 miles from Hiroshima with aircraft being 26,000 feet high. The tremendous power of a single atomic bomb instantly destroyed 60% of the city of Hiroshima. Within hours of the attack, radio stations began playing a prepared statement from President Harry Truman. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. In the absence of a Japanese surrender announcement, President Truman orders a second atomic attack to take place. On August 9, 1945, the 10,000-pound plutonium bomb, nicknamed Fat Man, is loaded onto the B-29 airplane called Boxcar. Commander and weaponeer Frederick Ashworth, another member of the Los Alamos team, keeps a progress log of the mission during that flight. 0347, takeoff. The Boxcar and two observation planes take off from Tinian and head to the primary target the Kokorura Arsenal, located at the southern end of Japan. 0400, charge green plugs to red prior to pressurizing. 0500, charge detonator condensers to test leakage. Satisfactory. Five hours later at 0915, arrived at rendezvous point at Takashima, encircled awaiting accompanied aircraft. At 0920, one B-29 sighted and joined in formation. 10.44, arrived initial point and started bombing run on target. Target was obscured by heavy ground haze and smoke. Two additional runs were made hoping that the target might be picked up after closer observation. However, at no time was the aiming point seen. It was then decided to proceed to Nagasaki after approximately 45 minutes had been spent in the target area. Pilot Charles Sweeney finds the weather conditions to be unacceptable and unwelcome above Kokorura. Sweeney makes three passes over, then decides to switch to the secondary target, even though he only has enough fuel remaining for a single bombing run. At 11.50, arrived in Nagasaki target area. Clouds greet boxcar as it approaches Nagasaki, home to the Mitsubishi plant that had manufactured the torpedoes used at Pearl Harbor. Approach to target was entirely by radar. At the last minute, a brief break in the cloud cover made it possible for a visual target at 29,000 feet. At 11.50, the bomb was dropped after a 20-second visual bombing run. The bomb functioned normally in all respects. Fat Man explodes 1,650 feet above the city with a force of 21,000 tons of TNT. At 12.05, they departed for Okinawa, having circled smoke column. Lack of available gasoline caused by an inoperative bomb, Bay Tank booster pump forced decision to land at Okinawa before returning. 13.51, landed at Yotan Field, Okinawa. All the factories and buildings on the Yurikami River were destroyed. In total, about 45% of the city was no longer. The very next day, August 10, 1945, Japan accepted the surrender terms. On August 14th, the war that began for the United States with the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, was now over.
as Japan surrendered officially, thus bringing an end to World War II. The trying of this new weapon came at a great cost. Little Boy killed 70,000 people at minimum in Hiroshima, including about 20 American airmen being held as POWs. And it injured another 70,000 at least. By the end of 1945, the Hiroshima death toll rose to 140,000 as radiation sickness deaths mounted. Five years later, the total had reached 200,000. Fat Man killed 40,000 people in Nagasaki, Japan, and injured 60,000 more. The total eventually reached 140,000 with a rate similar to that of Hiroshima. After the war, Americans were astounded to learn of the existence of a far-reaching, government-run, top-secret operation with a physical plant, payroll, and labor force comparable in size to the American automobile industry. In total, about 130,000 people were employed by the project at its peak. Among them, many of the nation's leading scientists and engineers. That total was almost the equivalent of the people that were killed in Nagasaki. The war might have ended there, but that isn't where the story ends. Now, there's a temptation for me to want to go on and tell of the story of the atomic and nuclear fallout, both in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki. But I'm going to steer you to a podcast that's going to do even far better, way beyond far better than what I can do in this regard. And that's Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. He has an episode, Hardcore History Blitz Edition, called The Destroyer of Worlds, which will give you a very quick history of the Manhattan Project, but will deal with about five and a half more hours of the fallout of its product. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Walls podcast. We'll be back next week with an episode that is going to wrap up, at least for now, our conspiracy theories episodes, as we will jump down the rabbit hole of the granddaddy of them all, in my opinion. In the meantime, you can connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Beyond the Walls podcast. And as always, email us at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.